you think you know what we're going to talk about. And welcome back to Three Fates Decide. It just sounds more dramatic that way. All right, so this week we are going to be talking about... But just when you least expect it, we changed the game. One Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I mean, we always celebrated Easter. Here's part of the Half-Blood Prince. So we're going to do another free talk, freestyle thing, no planned discussion. At the end of the day, only one thing matters. We decide. We're going to hit the main highlights. That is the thing that we were saying back in that episode. Quick recap. Three Fates Decide podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Three Fates Decide. My name is Sam, and I am here with my two co-hosts, Liz and Mary. Say hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. And tonight, we're going to start off section of our show. We're going to do, for October, almost like an Oktoberfest, where we're going to you know, talk about all different, you know, like monsters and, you know, kind of mystery, spooky stuff. So tonight for our first October episode, we're going to talk about one of America's cold cases, unsolved mystery of the Black Dahlia. And uh, this is something that will probably never be solved. It is definitely one of the oldest unsolved cases in American history and definitely one of the most famous in American history. So yeah, it's uh, from, let's see, uh, January of 1947. So long, long time ago. Yeah. Way before any of us were born. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this story has like a lot of mystique because, well, I mean, you know, where it happened and it's like in LA, Hollywood, and also, from what I remember, the unfortunate victim was a um, struggling actress mm-hmm. who tragically and unfortunately only became famous because of what happened to her and not because of any acting work she did. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll go through the history of it, what happened, the Black Dahlia. So on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a mother was taking her child for a walk in a Los Angeles neighborhood and stumbled upon the body of a young naked woman sliced in half at the waist. And apparently she was so pale, white from the blood loss, that at first the woman thought she was a mannequin. And unfortunately for that poor mother, it was not. Um, The body was just a few feet from the sidewalk and, you know, yeah, the, the poor mother thought. Despite the extensive mutilation and the cuts on the body, there wasn't any blood on the scene, so pretty much they think that she was killed someplace and then dumped there. The ensuing investigation was led by the LA Police Department. The FBI was asked to help, and they were able to identify the body uh, 56 minutes after getting blurred fingerprints via sound photo, which is basically like a fax machine. And the young woman turned out to be 22-year-old aspiring Hollywood actress Elizabeth Short, who was later dubbed as the Black Dahlia by the press. They say it's uh, her rumored sheer black clothes and the Blue Dahlia movie, which was like a murder mystery, had just come out around that time. So they kind of played on that, where instead of the Blue Dahlia, she was the Black Dahlia because of the black clothes. Funnily enough, um, her prints appeared twice in the FBI's massive collection. First, after she applied for a job as a clerk 
at the commissary for the army's cook in California. And the second she had apparently been arrested in Santa Barbara for underage drinking and she had a mugshot and everything. So that's why they were able to find out who it was because back then, you know, unless you were going for a job or in trouble, you, you couldn't really be found, you know, DNA and all that stuff wasn't a big thing uh, back then. So in support of the LA police, FBI ran record checks of potential suspects and conducted interviews across the nation based on early suspicions that the murder may have had skills in dissection because the body was so cleanly cut. Agents were also asked to check out a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School. There was a potential break in the case where the Bureau searched for a match of fingerprints found on an anonymous letter that they think might have been sent to the authorities by the killer, but the prints weren't in the FBI's files. So that is the mystery. Who did it and why? We need to know. Because mm-hmm. you know she did not go well. No. No. If just reading what what happened to her, that that no. It it was a nasty death. It was a painful death. Yeah. Very disturbing. Very much so. Yeah, they basically the examiner said that by the time that her body was found, she was already dead for about ten hours. I never understand people who do this kind of Horrific, creepy crap. Uh, I don't. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, when when somebody kills somebody and it's like, you know, you're like, for example, like a mob hit, for example, if they just shot you, it's like, you know, they just want to get the job done and move on unless it's like super personal. Right. But yeah. But like people who do this sort of thing, it's like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, I just, that's what I don't understand. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Well, and then, you know, unfortunately, you have people who enjoy like watching this type of stuff. And like, they start feeding fake things to police and stuff like that and make investigations so much harder. They like get a high off of it or something. It's weird. I know. I mean... Something similar happened with, like, um, Jack the Ripper murders mm. as well. So, I mean, that was all the way in the 1800s, and, like, people were, were weirdos who liked to feed fake info for whatever reason to the police. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, so, on January 21st, 1947, a person claiming to be Elizabeth Short's killer... Place a phone call to the office of James Richardson, who was the editor of the Examiner, congratulating Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case and stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police pursue him further. Additionally, the caller told Richardson to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. And a couple days later, a, a suspicious uh, envelope was discovered by a U.S. Postal Service worker. The envelope had been addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers with individual words that had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. Additionally, a large message on the face of the envelope read, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. Envelope contained shorts, birth certificate, business cards, photographs, uh, names written on a piece of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Henson embossed on the cover packet had been carefully cleaned with gasoline to ensure that there was no uh, fingerprints, which apparently Short's body had also been doused with gasoline to 
clean off any fingerprints and stuff. So it led police to suspect that the packet had indeed been sent by her killer. And despite efforts to clean the packet, several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI. But the prints were compromised in transit and could not be properly analyzed. Ain't that just always the way? So uh, the same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag, black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from where Short's body had been discovered. The items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Of course it was. Yep. And then on March 14th, an apparent suicide note scrawled in pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked in a shoe, a pile of men's clothing by the ocean edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue in Venice Beach. Note read, to whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. Pile of clothing was first seen by a beach caretaker who uh, reported the discovery of John Dillon, a lifeguard captain. Dillon immediately notified the West Los Angeles police station. The clothes included a coat and trousers of blue herringbone tweed and a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and tan leisure shoes size 8. Oh, tiny feet. Clothes gave no clue about the identity of the owner. Of course not. Like someone was just messing with them. Police quickly deemed Mark Hansen the owner of the address book found in the packet a suspect. Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and an acquaintance at whose home Miss Short had stayed with friends. And according to some sources, he also confirmed that the purse and shoe discovery in the alley were in fact Short's. He knew her, her purse and her shoe. Hmm. And Toth, Short's friend and roommate, told investigators that Short had recently rejected sexual advances from Hansen and suggested it as a potential cause for him to kill her. However, he was cleared of suspicion in the case. In addition to Hansen, the LAPD interviewed over 150 men in the ensuing weeks whom they believed to be potential suspects. Wow. A lot of them were people, I guess, uh, the last people to see Short alive. She was a, a waitress, I believe. Total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. Various locations were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains throughout Los Angeles, abandoned structures, and various sites along the Los Angeles River, but the searches yielded no further evidence. They even posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to killer and just for context that would equate to over one hundred twenty-one thousand dollars in the year 2021 so nice chunk of money yes but of course after that announcement various persons came forward with confessions most police uh dismissed as false several of the false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice because they're psycho first of all if you confess you really think you're gonna get the money yeah that's just weird kind of stupid too (laughs) to be frank (laughs) <laughs> yeah. On January 26th, another letter was received by the examiner, this time handwritten. It read, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. Letter was also 
also named a location at which the supposed killer would turn himself in. And of course, the police waited. He didn't appear. Instead, he sent another cut-and-paste letter to the examiner saying, yeah, I changed my mind. Of course. He would not have given me a square deal. <laughs> Did they really expect him to? Aya killing was justified. Yeah. No. Just playing. Man, trolling was totally a thing in the 40s, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then later down the line, the Herald Press also received several letters from the supposed killer, again, made with cut and paste clippings, one of which read, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try and find me. Uh-huh. He was toying with them. He's having a grand old time. And by the spring of 1947, it became a cold case with very few leads. No. So, and since then, <laughs> I think they've just given up. Well, yeah, I mean, considering how much time has gone by, it's like, you know, unless they have, like, some kind of smoking gun proof decades later, it's like, who would they be able to claim as the killer, you know? Well, and at this point, they even, they'll be alive. Well, no, but I guess, like, they just want to at least say who they, who who's the killer, so that anybody that's, like, next of kin or whatever can at least say that they got some kind of answer about who did it yeah yeah you know it's funny like um considering how famous this case is there's been quite a few people who've talked about the case and you know tried dissecting it and um you know when this when this idea for a topic kind of came up like i remembered again one of my many uh weird pandemic things that i was doing I started listening to a little bit of true crime, but in particular, the BuzzFeed Unsolved videos that um, former uh, staff members uh, Shane and um, Ryan would co-host. And uh, obviously, uh, one of the cases that they talked about in their BuzzFeed Unsolved stories, since, you know, again, it's such a famous case. It's like, how can you be doing like a true crime series and not talk about this, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a bit of a, well, duh, you have to talk about this one. And um, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, they mentioned that there was a suspect that popped up. And I think a lot of people who've been, you know, kind of like following this case, trying to see if they can puzzle out some stuff, have started suspecting that this particular person may have actually been the killer, but... Again, there's no, like, smoking gun, you know, evidence to prove that they actually did it. But there's, like, some suspect things about this person that really just makes you think that they probably did do it, you know? Yeah. It's it's one of the, I mean, listen, whoever did do it did a really good job at covering his tracks. Yeah. Yes. Like, I, it, it makes me feel like it was planned. You know, like they had everything set and ready to go. So it could have been, well, I know they cleared that Hanson guy, but I mean. Right. No. It's someone who had to have known, at least in my head, had to have known her, know where she was or, you know, whatever. And, you know, had had it all planned. Because there's no way that someone could just do this on a whim and be able to execute it without getting caught so well. Actually, you know, rather than being very vague, do you want me to kind of talk about like who the suspect is since i've just yeah. been very vague uh what was his name george hill hodel jr right right right. yeah so 
obviously there were many suspects like you said before like 150 different men got interviewed but um so like i mentioned before the buzzfeed unsolved so when they did this episode they actually spent quite a bit of time talking about a particular suspect which was george hodel um jr and yeah based off of the stuff that they were talking about it's like honestly the only reason why nobody is like officially saying he's the killer is because they don't have any hard physical evidence at this point but it's like there's just way too many things about this guy that just triggers your suspicions that he could have done it and honestly this guy is like is just like awful really aside from being a suspect for this horrible murder his daughter had pressed charges against him for child abuse sex abuse incest rape i mean this guy's a piece of work and sounds wonderful yeah and the crazy thing is is that the person who actually put forward george hodel as being a suspect and like being like very seriously looking into him as a suspect was his own son steve who was a lapd homicide detective so i mean i'm not sure what that says about you as a person when your own son a former police detective a former homicide detective is putting your name out there as being a probable murderer yeah i don't think it's uh no. I don't think that's a good thing. No. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I didn't actually watch this mini series, but um, back in 2019, actually, they did a mini series on TNT about George's granddaughter, who is a actual person. Um, her name is Fauna Hodel, and she was actually a true crime author. And the thing was, was that when she was a baby, she was put up for adoption. And she wound up looking into, you know, what's her backstory? Like, where does she come from? And that's when she found out that her biological mother is George's daughter, who had her when she was 15. And then the whole thing with the Black Dahlia came up in her investigation, obviously, when she was, like, looking into her origins. And, yeah, the... The crazy thing is, is that a lot of the accusations that the daughter had against her father, she claimed that he kind of pimped her to some of his friends when she was like 11, like starting at age 11. And she made accusations about incest. And that's why, like, it started fueling a theory that, unfortunately, Fauna, the this girl may have been a product of that nasty business. So she ended up doing, like, I think, a memoir about her, her own investigation into her past. And book got adapted into this miniseries on TNT, like I was saying, uh, starring Chris Pine um, called I Am the Night. So. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, one big reason, aside from the fact that um, he's a total creep, um, that made his son Steve put his dad out there as being who he 
thinks may have been the killer was like there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around the time that the murder happened that really just was like this is a little too coincidental so one factor was the fact that his father had a background as a physician and in fact in medical school he did study surgery so yeah he can make the cut very clean Mm -hmm. yeah and another thing was was that i think in the buzzfeed unsolved episode they mentioned that in the months or so leading up to the murder there was apparently some renovation work being done at his house so there's like all these like bags and things you know for the cement and other you know building materials and whatnot it's suspected some of these leftover bags may have been used to move her from the crime scene the original crime scene to where her body was discovered Mm. and um another bit of circumstantial evidence was that um so obviously you know before we have digital cameras and everything like everybody obviously has photo albums photo books you know random pictures in your collection right and apparently there's a couple of pictures in the guy's you know collection where it's quite possible that elizabeth short may have been in a couple of them so if that is true then that could sort of explain how he met her that like he was familiar with her like he did meet her at some point another interesting bit of detail that i'll mention that again popped up in uh buzzfeed and solved was um the fact that the way her body was posed was apparently pretty similar to how um so one of george hodell's like i don't know if they're like friends or just acquaintances that they know each other from hanging around the same circles but there was a artist at the time very famous artist man ray was one of um his acquaintances and apparently some of his photographic artwork had you know models and figures in different poses and apparently when elizabeth short was found her arms were posed a certain way that looked very similar to one of man ray's works i mean it could be a coincidence or something weird is going on we don't know but i don't believe in coincidences (laughs) yeah yeah but um and, you know, it doesn't help the fact that, um, again, this came up in BuzzFeed Unsolved, was the fact that there was another murder uh, weeks later that was very suspiciously similar to what happened to Elizabeth Short. And years later, George Hodel left the U.S. and wound up living in the Philippines. And there were some suspicious disappearances during that time period. So again, it's all circumstantial evidence, but is there proof, hard proof? No. So Yeah. If I was on the jury. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I don't think we'll ever ever know but i mean it's it is telling when there's that much circumstantial evidence again i don't believe in that many coincidences i'm just saying yeah oh um, absolutely but you know just kind of reading about this you know and i know a lot even like in today there's a lot of um shaming on the victims and stuff like that well of course 
lovely media, even back then, you know, would create all these rumors about Elizabeth Short and, and, you know, say all these terrible things about her, which is just horrible. I mean, the woman was brutally murdered and, you know, just to get people to read your newspaper, you would come up with all this crap. So a lot of talk on how she was allegedly a prostitute or a quote unquote uh, call girl while she was in Los Angeles. And, but a grand jury proved that there was no existence, but no evidence basically stating that that was true. So, you know, but also another widely circulated rumor is that Miss Short was unable to have sex because of a congenital defect that resulted in infantile genitalia. And I think the reason why they came up with this is because in the autopsy report, it mentioned that her uterus was small. And back then, you know, unless you were a doctor, you didn't know basic female anatomy. Just because your uterus is small doesn't mean nothing else works. You're infantile. Right. And she was a tiny person. So there you go. I mean, unless she had a disease, unless unless she would have like a disease or something. Uh yeah. Apparently in the autopsy, there was no other information provided that would have suggested that her reproductive organs were anything other than anatomically normal. Uh, Maybe I just on the petite side. Right. Because she was a petite woman. Right. They didn't know she was never pregnant, which apparently that had been a rumor that she was pregnant and all that, Mm. never pregnant. Then another rumor was that she was a lesbian. And, uh, you know, that's why she wasn't, quote unquote, having sex with men because you know her genitalia was small couldn't be having sex with men she must have been a a lesbian which means then the porters were going after a bars in los angeles trying to find information this poor woman (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's because she she was a typical what they call a man eater they they or they i should say they they her friends said that she was kind of like a man-eater. She liked turning men on, but then she would just leave them high and dry. She was a tease, a cock tease. that We would consider that a cock tease now. But yep. that's what her friends said she was like. So therefore, because she was doing that, but she wasn't go- following through with the sexual aspect of it, they could, that's, what, that's what made them think, well, maybe she's a lesbian. She actually likes women instead. Uh, no. Some women just get off on that. That's what makes... That's, how they get off is just by making men want them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to be wanted. Whether, I mean, listen, uh, that's that's not right either to, to you know. No. But at the same time. Not right. But, I mean, so we can't. So, I mean, her friends kind of portrayed her in a kind of in a negative light in that way, too. Right. My guess is they must have not have enjoyed that part of her. <laughs> Maybe they're a little jealous that she got so much attention. Maybe. Saying. Yeah, I was about to say, I wouldn't want friends like that talking shit about me when I'm dead. Yeah. I mean, I guess just like, uh, it was more toward like the, I know that they were talking to the police about how, you know, she was at this place or doing this, that and the other thing. So maybe to try and, you know, move the police in the right direction. And then the media just kind of took it and ran, which, you know. Like the media does. Yeah, that's true. No. Media never does something that like the the media would never lie about anything. What are you talking about? They would never stretch the truth. They would never. They're honest people. And if you do not, and I'm sorry, listeners, if you do not understand that that is a, the most sarcastic thing I can say right now, then God love you. Please keep that innocence. 
God love you. <laughs> um, oh. But some some fun facts. So on February 2nd, just two weeks after her murder, the Republican state assemblyman, C. Don Field, was prompted by the case to introduce a bill calling for the information of a sex offender registry. The state of California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. There you go. Her murder did do, made some changes. Unfortunately, it's always the horrible stuff that causes the change, but. Yeah. And then let's see, just some facts. Her murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history. And Time Magazine listed it as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. If you're not from the U.S., did you know about the Black Dahlia? I'd like to know. Or maybe it was back then. It was, you know, but but it's been the basis of numerous books, television shows, films, both fictionalized and nonfiction. Among some of the most famous fictional accounts of Short's death is James Elroy's 1987 novel, The Black Dahlia which, in addition to the murder, explored the large fields of politics, crime, corruption, and paranoia in post-war Los Angeles. Because in case you didn't know, this happened after World War II. So, yeah. And then Elroy's novel was adapted in 2006 to a film of the same name by director Brian De Palma. And Short was played by actress Mia Kirshner. Both Elroy's novel and the film adaptation bear little relation to the facts of the case. He took some liberties is basically what they're saying. Which again, Hollywood doesn't do that. No. They would never. Hollywood does facts and facts only. Short was also portrayed in heavily fictionalized accounts by Lucy Arnaz. The 1975 television film Who is the Black Dahlia? Jessica Nelson in season four, episode 13 of Hunter by Mina Savari in the series American Horror Stories in 2011, featuring short in the plot line of the episode Spooky Little Girl, and again in 2018 with Return to Murder House. Fun facts of the day about the Black Dahlia. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch us next time and see what we're going to talk about. Because the three fates decide.